I'm Alex Mozed. You're here on Winner Take All. On the show, we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. We try to make sense of what's going on in this constant back and forth. It is Christmas season, hence Christmas sweater time. And we've got a really good set of topics today. First one is about Expedia. Uh, end of last week, it was announced that Expedia is replacing their CEO and CFO. As we've spoken about before on the show, Barry Diller basically runs Expedia IAC. He has pretty much half of all the voting shares. It's pretty much his company. Basically, Barry and the CEO and CFO had a pretty big disagreement. If we rewind the clock to 2017, Dara, current CEO of Uber, was the CEO of Expedia. Barry really did not want to lose Dara. Um, he tried probably every trick in the book. And for a very well-to-do billionaire, that means there's a lot of tricks in that book of how you keep Dara incentivized to stay at Expedia. So lo and behold, there's just too much interest for Dara to go to Uber, run the show, take the company public. By the way, Uber is going to crush it. Um, and Dara's doing a fantastic job, in my opinion, over at Uber. And you can see why Barry didn't want to lose him. So Mark, the CEO, now former CEO, and Alan, now former CFO, are gone. Their strategy was, hey, Expedia has a bunch of different brands. You probably didn't know this. Many people probably didn't know this. Expedia owns Orbitz, Hotels.com, VRBO, and obviously Expedia.com. And so they wanted to try and unify all of these things together. Um, you know, they kind of had, some of them had different business models, like Orbitz is kind of like an aggregator of all the different uh, OTAs is what they call them. And then Hotels.com had its own thing, but it all kind of go back to the same inventory, right? Like Expedia and Hotels would use the same inventory. Um, and there wasn't a unified experience. VRBO is the vacation rentals stuff um, that's kind of like trying to compete with Airbnb. And anyway, they wanted to bring all these things together. And that was the plan. Last quarterly earnings, you can see here a dip uh, in November, but not, not a dip, like a crater in November. And that was when they missed earnings um, by a lot, by like 20%, or they, their stock lost over 20%. They had a big miss, both revenue and earnings, Expedia did. Um, so did TripAdvisor. Both companies on their earnings calls blamed Google. And for, and rightly so. And we covered it on the show. And we explained how Google is squeezing suppliers. That's the classic move for tech monopolies to squeeze the suppliers. Customers always win. It's the suppliers, the producers, the websites like an Expedia, TripAdvisor, Yelp, Booking.com. Those are the ones that get squeezed when the monopoly needs to crank out growth and earnings. Um, but the but the overall growth of the business has matured. So where do they get growth? They get it by competing more directly with supply. And that's true. But I guess it wasn't the whole truth in Expedia's case. Um, and really now what's come about is that the, the, the other part of the story is that there's a, that, that this brand unification plan was poorly executed, according to Barry. And now they've gotten rid of the CEO and the CFO. Barry has committed to doing a large share repurchase. The stock actually jumped 5% on the news that these two executives were being ex exited from the company. Um, and now Barry is searching for a, a new CEO. And I guess he's kind of running the company. 
um, in the interim. Now, there's kind of a few interesting points to this. So our friend Ben Thompson doesn't think that there's a problem with Google squeezing its suppliers in this mechanism. He says the problem, though, Google's monopoly is a product of user choice and, and, and not structural factors. So Google pays a big fine and nothing changes. After all, if there's no structural problems, what structural remedies are there? Um, it sometimes seemed the only possible solution to start regulating product design. Compel Google to serve 10 blue links forever. Basically, it doesn't see this as a viable way to provide regulation. And, and this is where I would disagree. So there's this thing called matchmaking. Every platform has matchmaking, right? And this is also the difference between this kind of aggregator and platform thing. So Netflix says it's an aggregator, um, but Netflix's supply, they control all the supply. So there isn't a matchmaking function in the sense that I, as the platform of, say, Google Search or YouTube, am connecting a consumer with a third-party producer, either a third-party website like Expedia or a third-party video on YouTube. That's where the matchmaking function is very critical. That's where you have things like the Google search algorithm or Amazon's product search algorithm. And the prioritization of Google listings over third-party listings. You don't need to dictate the design, but you can very easily measure and say, okay, um, five years ago, Google, you had zero listings for travel. And today, that's not the case. Why don't we take a look? Let's look at NYC Hotel. This, this is all ads. So booking.com, you can see here. Kayak is here. Trivago is here. Hotwire is here. They're paying all ads for this. So I don't even see any organic listings uh, above the fold, right? And that is, again, by design, because here's what the organic listings look like. So now this is this is the second fold, and that's all Google. For you to be displayed as a hotel in these listings, guess who you got to pay? The middleman, Google. This is exactly Expedia's business model, right? Now you say, and here is TripAdvisor, right? Now here are the organics. TripAdvisor, Booking, Trivago, Expedia. That's the organic. It's on the third fold, the third full page scroll. You rewind the clock five years ago. I'm sure I could go pull up a cache of this. It's going to be completely different. And so who benefits from this? It's Google. It's Google literally taking up not just like the first few links of travel search, but literally the first two pages of travel search. You either got to pay for an ad or you got to pay to be in, you know, Google's little kind of like you know, travel widget. And if you don't, you're irrelevant. That's a, that's not, that's not like, oh, well, Google was going to have one of its own links in the first five or 10 links. And now it has two links. Okay. This is a spectrum difference of competition. This isn't marginal. Oh, Google's like taking an extra link for itself. No, no, no. They're literally taking extra entire pages to themselves. Because they need to show Wall Street growth of revenue and EBITDA. And that's where the suppliers get squeezed. And then so you ask yourself, again, what, what, what you want to go back to is don't say, oh, well, does this hurt 
the consumer, me, Alex, or you, our lovely viewers, does this hurt your experience on Google? Ah, I don't know. You could debate that for decades. But when you think about who is Google's customer on the supply side, are Google's third-party websites customers? And I would say, absolutely, they're customers because they are giving Google content and they're giving Google money. Who is paying Google more ads because Google is now deprioritizing their organic listings? That's kind of the definition of a customer, right? Like, I have to pay you, Google, money, and you're making money off of me. Hmm. Doesn't that kind of mean customer? Oh, yeah, that's right. It does. Um, These are Google's customers, and they absolutely take advantage of them. So... Ben will defer to Booking.com and say, hey, look at what Booking.com CEO says. Uh, Regarding SEO, we saw some headwinds in the SEO channel that did create some modest pressure, but it's a small channel for us. In the end, what's more important for us to get customers to come to us directly? We've talked about this a lot in the past. It's one of those things that I think is very important. For us to have our own future is to create a service that is so wonderful, so good that people just naturally will come back to us directly. And we will not be as dependent on other sources of traffic. Literally, what they're saying is you can't rely on the tech monopoly, Google, and you need to have people come direct. That, that is not a solution, right? The whole point here is that when you are a tech monopoly, what the role of regulation is to help create a competitive environment. And so what the competition is saying, booking, is saying, well, we can't compete there. We need to go do our own thing. And we need customers to come directly. So that's the whole point of like creating a competitive environment has gone completely out the window. There's no competitive environment. The competitors are saying, screw it. I can't be on Google anymore because I just can't compete. So I need to go direct to the customer. That's not a solution. And that's the whole point of government intervention is to try and create some semblance of competition. And some semblance of competition, it's very easy to measure. You say, hey, Google, your matchmaking algorithm has gotten kind of completely out of whack because now it's not just one or two links in the first fold that go to your sites. It's now literally the first two pages and the third page is now organic listings. Hmm. Is that still competitive? Um, No, it's not competitive. So these are very black and white things. And it's not actually, I don't need to dictate the product design. I don't need to tell the product designer on Google, this is how you need to design the page. This is what need the, the links need to look like. It's very easy to say, let me take a measurement of screen real estate and how much of that goes to Google stuff versus organic stuff. And then when you're on the third page, now there's some organic uh, screen real estate. It's pretty easy to calculate. So respectfully disagreeing on that front. And uh, I do think that, Expedia, I think the same thing is true for booking. Booking's just downplaying this for their investors because they don't want it, you know, investors to ridicule them as much. But um, booking's in plat, Expedia's in plat, TripAdvisor's in plat. The large tech monopoly Google is hurting the smaller platform producers on Google search. And it's true for booking and trip and, and Yelp and, Ex- and Expedia. And this is the whole point of government intervention. But, you know, I don't have much faith in the Department of Justice or the FCC, unfortunately, for Expedia and, and, and the producer's case in all of this. So anyway, um, more tech. Mon- now, where, do, where does all that money go that Google is squeezing these people for? Oh, it goes into this thing called Waymo. 
Where are you, Waymo? Here you are. Waymo is now an app and you can download it on iOS. Doesn't mean that you're going to be able to book a robotic self-driving car for yourself on Waymo wherever you live. Here in Manhattan, concrete jungle, I'm definitely not being able to use Waymo. But if you're in Phoenix, now you can. And it's on iOS. It was on the Google Play Store in, I think, April of this year. You know, basically, this is a sign that Waymo is getting ready to go more mainstream. Uh, Waymo had placed an order for thousands of, uh, of these minivans from FCA, Fiat Chrysler. Um, that's who they'd been partnering with uh, Google Waymo had to, to do this. By some estimates, analyst estimates, Waymo is valued at a $100 billion company. Now, do I think that Waymo is going to go and roll out its own, um, you know, its own nationwide kind of taxi business? I don't think so. Let's kind of look a little bit at the numbers of cars, right? So let's say your average Uber car lasts about five years max. Uh, a Toyota Camry costs about $30,000. And so if you divide that by five years, um, you know, maybe you can sell that car for $5,000. Uh, if if it's in decent shape at the end of that, you know, you'll have over 200,000 miles on that car. So you've got, you know, roughly $5,000, let's just say, of depreciation expense every year. A good rule of thumb for maintenance and accidents and all that kind of stuff is about $5,000 a year. So let's say you got about, um, you know, between depreciation expense and uh, maintenance, you got about $10,000 a year. And then obviously there's the cost of the human that needs to drive the car. But when you run all those numbers, if you got $10,000 a year divided by 52 weeks, okay, that's actually not that much money. But now you put in the cost of the driver, uh, where if you're running that car for 40 hours a week and, and that person needs to make at least hopefully 10 or $12 an hour, so that's say four or $500 compared to about $200 a week and just kind of maintenance and um, depreciation expense and these kinds of things. That is a very, right? If you, if, if, let's just say $700 a week is kind of the cost. $500 for the human, $200 for the machine. That's a nice split, right? So the, you can see how this is a game changer for the economics of Waymo and what they could charge. Could, could Waymo charge 30% of what Uber is charging? Yeah, I would say so if they really wanted to get aggressive with it. Um, do I think Google sees Waymo as you know, them having a massive taxi fleet to go and, uh, you know, have all their own cars on their balance sheet and do this. No, I don't think so. I think the platform version of Waymo is to, you have your initial fleet of a few thousand cars that seeds the marketplace. And then what you do is you let other um, people buy cars, maintain them, um, and, and take that depreciation expense, that maintenance expense onto their own. And you give them a little bit of margin. So maybe instead of a 30% cut, you take a 40 or 50% cut on the rates from an Uber. And you give a little bit margin to the third-party individual who could now own a fleet of Waymo self-driving cars. And now you kind of seed the marketplace with a few thousand cars. But now you can get 10 or 20,000 other cars or, you know, theoretically more um, from all these third-party 
um, kind of like franchisees that are buying Waymo self-driving cars, maintaining them, putting up the capital to buy them. And bam, now you have an Uber competitor at scale. I like that model. But here's the bigger opportunity for Waymo. Bigger opportunity is to uh, provide this self-driving technology to the OEMs, to the car manufacturers, to beyond just the, the Fiats, the FCAs, uh, to the other car OEMs. And, and now way, um, Android Automotive is what that's called. Android Automotive has done deals with GM. It's so crazy to me that, that, that they did that deal. I still don't understand why they did that deal. But I think in like 2021, GM will use Google's embedded Android Automotive OS in 2021. I, I don't know if there's an easier way to just concede victory. This isn't even a Trojan horse. Google's not even hard hiding in some wooden horse that they're bringing into your castle. It's literally wide open that Google is coming to kill you, GM. Why would you ever let Android Automotive into your vehicle? This is GM. They own, um, they've been doing OnStar for 10 plus years. They have really good connectivity in their cars. Um, what's the other multi-billion dollar thing that they bought for, uh, which of course I'm blanking on. Um, but they have plays with automotive and, and, and self-driving stuff. I mean, this was the last one that I would have thought that would have done a deal with, with Google, but so has Honda and so has some other OEMs. So, um, that to me is the real play because when you look at what now Android automotive can do when it is now controlling the vehicle, that's way more money than ride sharing people. That's trillions of dollars trillions with a t android automotive is going to be able to take a cut of all the services going in and out of the v connected vehicle this is more than ride sharing think about um renting your car on a turo or a get around think about um getting gas delivered to your car while you're at work think about connected insurance think about getting a package delivered to your trunk there are, think about uh, like on-demand maintenance and repair for your vehicle. There's so much money spent on the servicing of vehicles, trillions of dollars. All of that's now going to have to flow through Android Automotive. And what is Android and Google genius at doing? Building developer ecosystems. Uh, yeah, they have millions of app developers that will automatically say, oh my God, I'm making all these apps that are now seamlessly connected and can get access to the car. Oh, and you don't think Android's going to take their little toll? I mean, not a little toll, but they're going to take their toll on the money flowing and the services flowing in and out of that vehicle? You bet they can. And that is worth way more than $100 billion, which is what Waymo, some analyst is putting that value on it, right? But the, the thing that is so valuable with Waymo is they're going to bring this self-driving technology to the OEMs that can't make it on their own, which there's a bunch. Apparently GM's even signing up for it. And you thought they'd be okay. But there's a bunch of car manufacturers that don't have good self-driving technology. And now Google will say, here you go, take it. You want your self-driving technology? You want to sell more cars that can drive themselves? Great. Just, you got to put my operating system in your car. It's the most basic tactic that every platform does. It's called commoditize the complement. 
It's called You Give Away the Technology for Free to Get Access to the Ecosystem. That's what Google's doing. Google's going to kill it. They'll probably still squeeze the hell out of Expedia and booking on Google search just because they can and because the regulators are too dumb to figure this out and actually put a coherent antitrust argument together. What are you going to do? Well, you know, the the OEMs could have done something about this if they had actually created a consortium to work together, to pool their resources together and create a unified front against Google. But they're also too stubborn to do that. So, you know, honestly, them losing out on this, that's their own fault. Um, Now, anyway, let's keep moving, gang. SoftBank. More troubles for SoftBank. God, it just doesn't get any easier. Who loves puppies? I love puppies. Um, Unfortunately, SoftBank doesn't love puppies anymore. Actually, puppies have cost SoftBank and their investors a lot of money. So a couple of years ago, um, there's WAG and Rover. Those are the two big players. So WAG was kind of behind on the fundraising uh, trajectory here. So this was Rover. Rover Q3 2017 raised $155 million. By Q4 2017, for WAG, they had raised $61 million. Kind of a a little bit behind, right? This is uh, WAG, $61 million, Q4 2017. This is Rover, Q3 2017, $155. Roughly a third. They'd raised a third of the money that Rover had made. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big head start, right? Bam! Look at this thing spike. That's SoftBank money. That's $300 million of SoftBank money. Boom. Coming in hot. Q1 2018. Apparently at about a $650 million valuation, I guess. I don't know if that's pre-money or post-money. Anyway, SoftBank has now sold its stake back to WAG. Interesting where WAG got the money from, but they've, or they've sold at least half of their stake back to WAG. The CEO of WAG left. This lady, she's now going to go run Shutterfly. Hillary Schneider, she's out of there. Apparently, WAG was running into a bunch of issues. Look when she took over. January 2018. I don't know. I can't zoom in on this. That says January 2018. Bam! $300 million hits the bank. Hillary's at the, at the helm of this thing. Hillary burned through too much money. And now she's gone. She took this other job. Things weren't going so well for WAG. What were they doing? Oh, they were pulling a SoftBank special. That means they're literally lighting money on fire to aggressively grow, right? Same thing that uh, SoftBank told Adam Newman from WeWork, right? Just go, scale, run as fast as you can, Adam. Don't care about the bottom line. We need growth. Um, Well, I guess the same message was given to WAG. WAG was trying to aggressively now catch up to Rover. Um, I haven't heard as much rumblings about Rover. I mean, there are issues with dog walking um, in terms of the trust factor. You do hear stories about, unfortunately, you know, dogs being hit or harmed or just crazy stories, which strikes fear in the hearts of any pet owner. Um, we, my fiance doesn't trust them. She won't use them. Literally will not use them. 
And I joke about using them. So that means our dog gets walked to the park by one of us every day. It's a nice life. He, he lives a great life. But anyway, for anyone else that it doesn't, isn't able to work from home um, or have that free time to go walk their dog on their own, you're kind of stuck. What are you going to do? Wag or Rover. And um, they've had issues, but I don't think Rover was aggressively expanding and burning money. Remember, remember they, they, were, they were much farther ahead of WAG. So WAG was coming from behind. It took them less than two years to rinse through a, way too much money. Hillary's out. And now I think their head of product is taking over. They had to do a bunch of layoffs. Just an unfortunate place to be in. But that's the problem with raising so much money. When you raise so much money like that, you start to run the business without any grounding whatsoever. I mean, sure, when you are losing money and you're building a platform and you're burning through money, yes, you, need, you, you're, you are going to take risks differently than if you are building the business profitably, okay? And you're putting growth at, at a much higher priority than obviously profits, right? Um, but when you have that such a large influx of money and you have your lead investor telling you to go, 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 now that grounding or any semblance of grounding does not exist and you are just going and burning, clearly, a bunch of money. And that's the problem. Now, I think, I think basically in the past few months, you've seen a wholesale change in the mentality of investors that don't, basically aren't tolerating um, that, uh, that, that just kind of growth at all costs type of mentality. So generally, I think that's a good thing. Um, it was just it was just not sustainable. Cle- clearly, it caused a lot of I think pain and hardship. And ultimately, what this does is it hurts all the employees that join these businesses. A wag, a uh, you know a a WeWork um, that join these businesses. Now their options are all underwater, or they're out of a job. Um, and what it's also done to other platforms that are public, a Lyft and Uber that are not profitable, but I think we'll get to profitability, Lyft, Uber included. I think Uber will still dominate. But those employees' options, many of the new ones, those options are also underwater because the investor sentiment is now much harder, or I guess just much more realistic, that they're not tolerating these losses as much as they used to. Now, eventually, I think for the companies that do hit profitability, Lyft, Uber, et cetera, those shares will bounce back. But in the interim, for those employees that worked a lot and, and took you know, deferred cash for equity compensation, they're stuck. So that's kind of the hard spot they're in. Let's look at Amazon Business. We've got this analyst here from RBC, Mark Mahaney, who says that by 2023, Amazon Business will have $31 billion in revenue. Sales will quintuple to $52 billion. Now, quintuple means 5X. Now, here's the thing for Mark. Amazon Business was doing $10 billion in GMV last year. Oh, you know who predicted that? Yes, we did. Uh, Here's the article. June 25th, 2018. Amazon Business is a top B2B distributor. You guys, this this one's locked up, but basically what it says is 
we estimated that Amazon was doing was going to hit over $10 billion in GMV in the 2018 calendar year. Three months later, Amazon Business came out and confirmed that. We were right. And that means that when Amazon was doing, business was doing over $10 billion in GMV, that they were um, a top 20 B2B distributor in terms of throughput and volume. Amazon, a, a few years ago, had said that they were doing, growing at 20% a month. Okay, that's crazy. Uh, you do that compounded growth rate, it's pretty bonkers. Um, I don't think that Amazon business is still growing at that level, but we estimate for this year that Amazon is doing between somewhere between 15 to $20 billion in GMV, which means that if they're going to quintuple off of that, they're going to be actually doing between 75 or $100 billion in GMV. I don't know exactly what base he's going, well, I do know what base he's going off of. Quintupling means they're doing $10 billion in revenue. I think he's just a year off. So I don't know if that changes his prediction. I'd be curious if Mark was using a 15 to $20 billion GMV base, is he still think it's going to quintuple to 75 to $100 billion? I think they're definitely going to be above $50 billion by 2023. I mean, come on. 2023. Absolutely. I, I, I would say, yeah, actually, definitely. They're going to be around $7,500 billion by 2023 for sure. $31 billion. The difference here between revenue and GMV, right? That's what we've talked about. Take rate. I sell something for a hundred bucks on Amazon. Amazon takes a 10 to 20% of that take rate. That means say they get 10 to $20 in revenue off of a hundred dollar sale. So some of Amazon business, they are selling as a traditional linear reseller. I buy product, put it on balance sheet and resell it. That counts 100% as revenue. Or if it's th third-party sale GMV, then they get 10 to 20% of that as a take rate, which and that goes towards their revenue calc. That's why you see the revenue is lower than the GMV. We have said again, Amazon business is a monster win for Amazon. The incumbents have a lot of advantages to compete and push back. We just did a deep dive on Zorro, Granger's uh, kind of e-commerce play to compete against them on the last episode. And um, Amazon's going to absolutely dominate this. There is room for vertical specific winners. So if you're, an, if you're a large multi-billion dollar B2B distributor in a specific vertical, you can create a competitive marketplace that either has the number one or possibly number two behind Amazon spot. That's a big win. That's essentially what we're seeing Walmart do successfully. That'll go down as one of the biggest business transformations in the past 50 years. This number is completely bonkers. RBC estimates the total addressable B2B market is $67 trillion. I guess this is a global number. In the US, it's 6 to $8 trillion. Um, now, if you include agriculture and a couple other industries, it probably gets a little bit bigger, but. It's the largest industry in the United States. Consumer retail is two and a half trillion. B2B is six to eight trillion. Healthcare is three trillion. B2B is massive. And Amazon has a huge, huge head start here. So um, yeah, basically it's just saying, finally, the analysts are now factoring this into Amazon's, um, into Amazon's uh, earnings. But Amazon, Amazon business started in 2016. So we're now roughly three years into the life cycle, and now the analysts are starting to pick it up. Analysts are picking up things that are much shorter term, right? So if this is coming to the analyst kind of scope, uh, it's now becoming real and much bigger. And uh, okay, last 
Last topic. So let's do a little comparison here. We had a great little graphic that we put up looking at the shopping. So you had Alibaba Singles Day in 2019 did 38. This is U.S. billion dollars. Um, this is their kind of big, kind of like Cyber Monday, but not based around Thanksgiving. It, it was based around basically like a dating holiday. I guess you were like single and you go shopping. Um, Cyber Monday, 9.4 billion. Black Friday, 7.4 billion. Amazon Prime Day, that's in the summer, 7.16 billion. Thanksgiving Day, 4.2 billion. Anyway, you add up all of these US big shopping events, it's about $28 billion. This is still $38 billion for Alibaba. Now, okay. There's like five times the amount of people in China. And we are 38 to 28 billion when you add up all these different events. But Alibaba, as we've, you know, we've spoken about, Alibaba's doing over $400 billion in GMV. Amazon's doing about $277 billion in GMV. Alibaba does way more throughput. Amazon does way more revenue. Amazon is um, a much bigger company by market cap uh, and profitability. A- Alibaba has a different way of monetizing. They are much more of a pure marketplace. Alibaba isn't isn't being as much of a linear reseller as Amazon is. Um, so that doesn't go into their revenue figures. Alibaba really makes most of its money on advertising, which is something Amazon has just gotten into. But you can kind of see the throughput here. There are other companies besides Alibaba, like JD, like Pinduoduo, that have also piled onto this. Um, into Alibaba's Singles Day. They started Singles Day. But um, the the other takeaway from this is that it's the U.S. and China that are setting the tech trends. Um, absolutely, right? When you look at just where the dominant platforms exist, the Facebook executives are very quick to uh, to cite this stat: the six of the ten largest tech companies in the world are Chinese. So when they are going in front of Congress and trying to make it a U.S. versus China thing. Yeah, China's a real deal. They're here. It's not going anywhere. They're setting their own trends. They're beating us with their own trends. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot that, you know, both sides can learn from one another with mutual respect about uh, different platform trends and how they're materializing in the different countries. Where you see these things kind of spill over is from China into Southeast Asia, um, U.S. into Europe and all these kinds of things. But very interesting analysis to kind of compare and contrast. I mean, the other thing is that Cyber Monday trumps Black Friday um, and certainly Thanksgiving um, and Amazon's Prime Day, which they just made out of the blue in the summer, is now basically almost on par with all of Black Friday just on Amazon. So uh, so it's yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting how the just the dominant platforms can basically just create their own holidays. Uh, it's kind of awesome. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Um, we will talk to you to tomorrow. Thanks for joining us.